2019 marks the 100th anniversary of the publication of the first edition of Karl Barth's Romans Commentary. No better occasion could be found, I think, for a conference on Barth's eschatology. It was in the second edition of 1922, in fact, in which Barth said, and I quote, a Christianity which is not holy and without remainder eschatology has nothing whatsoever to do with Christ. So it is not surprising that a number of our speakers at this conference should be treating Bart's Romans. I am very glad, personally, that Phil and Kate chose eschatology for the theme of our conference this year. I am also very glad that they have chosen the speakers they have and have been able to secure their services. It is a star-studded lineup, and we are grateful to each one of them for coming. No less than five New Testament scholars will be speaking to us. That in itself, I think, deserves our attention. Karl Barth's first regular appointment in a German university in Münster was in systematic theology and New Testament exegesis, for it was in the field of exegesis that he first made a name for himself. I have to confess, looking back, a number of years, at a, looking back a number of years ago now, I had grown accustomed to hearing New Testament scholars say that Barth's commentaries on Romans were not commentaries at all, but perhaps practical theology. Until I heard Beverly Gaventa say one day, it is a commentary, a most unusual commentary, which upsets a number of norms, but a commentary nonetheless, one which breathes of the spirit of Pauline apocalyptic. In any event, Phil and Kate have created an enormously rich program for us, and I look forward with great anticipation to hearing what our speakers have to say, and I congratulate you on putting together such a great conference. It is my pleasure now to introduce to you our speaker for our opening lecture. You have in your packets biographies for each speaker listing their recent publications and I will not repeat here what you can easily find there. What I do want to say simply is this. Christoph Schribel is, in my judgment, one of the finest dogmatic theologians in the world today. What sets him apart, I think, is that he is extremely well-versed in 20th and 21st century studies in the philosophy of religion. His years in Tübingen were also marked by participation in theological and philosophical reflection on what happens in cross-cultural exchange. His book on Thomas Mann is a reflection of the breadth of his interests. Thus, his work in dogmatics in recent years has been enriched by stimuli coming from other fields significant to Christian living and church life in our time. On a personal note, I am fortunate to be able to count Christoph as a dear friend. I have been acquainted with his work since reading his critical edition of the letter exchange between Karl Barth and Martin Rada in the mid-1980s. I learned later that we were both good friends of Colin Gunton, um, which gave us another connection. We worked together with Friederike Nussel, Heidelberg, as editors of the Theologische Bibliothek Turpelmann monograph series published by de Gruyter. I was delighted to work with him in a celebration of the 50th anniversary of Karl Barth's trip to Rome at the Dominican House of Studies in 2016. His contributions 
both in presenting a paper and in interacting with others, were for me the highlight of that conference. I look forward to what he has to say to us tonight. His provocative title is The Beginning of the End, or The End of the Beginning, Bart's Eschatology as a Guide to the Perplexed. Christoph, welcome back to Princeton. The podium is yours. Thank you, Bruce, for this very kind introduction. And thank you for this invitation to the BART conference in, two, in Princeton. I'm particularly honored and grateful and delighted about this invitation because I'm not a proper Bartian. Well, a Bartian of sorts, perhaps, but not a real Bartian. I'm just a bread-and-butter dogmatic theologian and um, who writes on Bart occasionally when he's asked, when he's asked nicely, and sometimes succeeds to do so, sometimes not. Therefore, this has a particular um, emphasis for me. In addition to that, I have the feeling that not being a Bartian, only a Bartian of sorts, also has certain advantages. I've never had to worry whether I was the right sort of Bartian. So now to our topic. My paper is in four parts, and it starts with a section on perplexities. The theme of eschatology of the attempt at finding and understanding of what is last, what is ultimate, and therefore determinative of everything that precedes this last, temporally and substantively, seems to be omnipresent in our cultural situation. The environmental crisis, the global political situation, the advances of technology and their application to the human species individually and collectively seem to present us with states of affairs which bear the signature of transcending the sequence of what has been until now. The feeling that the future has already started, a future that is not formed in Aristotelian fashion from reflection on our memories, seems present everywhere. Popular books reflect on our destiny beyond the earth and evoke such traditional theological themes as immortality, while at the same time investing humanity with quasi-divine attributes when they speak of the cultivation of other planets as terraforming. The advances of artificial intelligence research sometimes create a picture of humanity that is painted in the image of the artificial intelligences it created. Will future humans be able to recognize themselves in the people who were in dialogue with Socrates and walked the roads of Galilee with Jesus, or who invented the calculus with Newton and Leibniz, or will they lack the glimmer of recognition when presented with such images of a past that no longer seems their own? 
Will the future of the Homo sapiens sapiens be such that the future exemplars of that genus no longer recognize the history of those who call themselves human as their own history, or perhaps prehistory? <coughs> However, as much as the themes of eschatology have become part of everyday parlance, the overcoming of death, the new earth, and be it on Mars, the final judgment on humanity as an experiment gone wrong, handed down by transhumanism, there remains a profound ambiguity. What for some appears as a welcome utopia, a dream come true, is for others a dystopia to be abhorred. Images of the future are presented either as promises of a better future or as threats that should call us to repentance. Where shall we go? Where shall we turn if where we come from no longer provides orientation for where we should go? And oddly enough, the images of where we are heading have begun to shape our sense of who we are. No wonder that these scenarios can, can create a profound sense of perplexity. Should we understand the visions of the future, a future we are assured of which we are already part, as the judgment of the law, calling us to repentance, or as the promise of new gospels leading us into futures beyond our earthbound imagination? Christian theology cannot withdraw from such debates. So many of the images that belong to a religious imagination nurtured by the biblical scriptures have been pressed into service for the new mythopoetic fantasy of secular eschatologists, that it would seem inappropriate not to question the theological legitimacy and the intellectual honesty of such a recycling of theological visions in anthropological projections of the future. Should it not make all our theological alarm bells ring when the attributes of the triune God are so easily transferred to human agents, albeit in a transhuman state? What has happened to the finality of the gospel if it can so easily be supplemented and perhaps superseded by new gospels which offer very different promises. Should the strategies of demythologization, controversially discussed for decades, not be applied far more fittingly to world pictures of the future than to the world pictures in which the gospel of Christ was supposedly clothed in the biblical witnesses? Especially since what was propo proposed in earlier debates the constancy, what was presupposed in earlier debates, the constancy of the existential understanding of what it means to be human is now under debate. What can Christian theology contribute to lifting or at least alleviating the state of perplexity in which our debates seem to be trapped? Christian theology has not been unaffected by the privileging of questions of the future destiny of the earth and of the cosmos. Not only eschatological questions, which shaped so much of the debates in the 20th century, 
have been taken up again. They have been raised with a new urgency in which questions of apocalypticism play an important role, so much so that one has spoken of an apocalyptic turn in theology. The primary impetus came from New Testament exegesis, more precisely the interpretation of Paul's letters. Eurytus claimed that the apocalyptic language should not be taken as an expression for something else, but should be taken seriously as signifying the disruptive force of God's saving event in Christ, with which something genuinely new shatters the structures of the old order in which humans are captive to sin and effect at the same time God's own self-revelation. In order to characterize this new apocalyptic turn, one should not concentrate too much on the term apocalyptic. After all, it was in its present usage introduced at the beginning of the 19th century to characterize an attitude which sees the course of history determined by God's intervention in history to effect a turn from the old to the new, setting an end to the influence of all powers contrary to God and establishing a new reign of God where God is revealed to all. The new apocalyptic turn does not rely so much on, pre, on a pre-established understanding of apocalypticism, but tries to define the term contextually by who, what, and how God is revealed in Christ's story. As such, it emphasizes the sovereignty of God's reign, breaking the power of evil, and establishing God's rule in a disruptive event that brings with it its own categories of understanding. In this sense, Ernst Kesemann's dictum that apocalypticism is the mother of Christian theology is not interpreted as a merely historical hypothesis, but as a guide to the theological truth that is announced in Paul's apocalyptic theology. If Christian theology is conceived in this way as an apocalyptic eschatology, it does not only affect the doctrine of the last things, but offers a comprehensive perspective on Christian theology. It is radically Christocentric insofar as the person and work of Christ is seen as God's own saving advent in human history. Because of its theocentric and Christocentric character, or better, theo-in-Christocentric character, it resists restriction to the anthropological dimension, emphasizes the connection between anthropology and cosmology. God's coming in Christ creates a new humanity in a new cosmos. It privileges discontinuity over continuity. Only in the breakthrough of God's advent in Christ can the continuity of God's saving actions action be correctly perceived. <coughs> Apocalypticism, in this sense, is not just a descriptive historical category with which one can categorize phenomena from the outside, as in the works of the History of Religion School, 
but a theological perspective which consciously takes its stance within an apocalyptic worldview, claiming that it is this perspective which the ultimacy of the gospel makes obligatory. Thank you very much. By its emphasis on the discontinuity, this theological approach challenges views which see everything embraced by the continuity of nature and grace, where grace does not disrupt and destroy, but completes and perfects the order of nature. In the end, the beginning, Jürgen Moltmann's theological motto acquires in this context a new urgency. In the end, this beginning, the beginning established in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the beginning of a new creation. This seems the perspective emphasized by the apocalyptic turn. The critical power this new perspective involves with regard to the perplexities of other secular, religious, and quasi-religious views should be appreciated. The emphasis on God's saving advent contrasts sharply with the, with the visions of human or transhuman self-perfection in a new technological metacosmos. The apocalyptic turn is, however, not without its own complexities, which may easily cause perplexity. Is there not a sense in which the focus on the beginning in the end also requires an emphasis that the end is the end of the beginning, of this beginning in which God defines the end of what he begins from the beginning? Is there not, for any apocalyptic view, however discontinuous it describes God's saving advent in relation to the world as we experience this, the old world order, an underlying continuity which is rooted in God's being and character, so that in a precise theological sense, the end is contained in the beginning, so that the end is also the end of this beginning, the beginning rooted in God's own being and will. How else should we understand Paul's emphasis in a context which concerns the heart of the gospel the proclamation that Christ is the Lord, that God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Second Corinthians 4, 6. Undoubtedly, this is also an apocalypsis, although one based on the continuity of God's action in creation, redemption. And revelation. Perplexed? Again? Second section. Signpost in Karl theology to help the perplexed. <coughs> At first sight, it must seem foolhardy to choose Karl as the guide to the perplexed. Did he not leave his magnum opus, the church dogmatics, unfinished? before he could come to a fully-fledged treatment of eschatology in the plan volumes 5, the doctrine of redemption. Is not the transition from the first edition of Romans and its process eschatology to the second edition with its consistent eschatology, which might well be called an apocalyptic eschatology, 
enough of a vindication for the new apocalyptic school. Are the many resonances which one can find between the writings of the new apocalyptic school and the second edition of Romans not enough of a vindication of the persistent relevance of Bath theology even after a hundred years? It seems to me that one can learn most from Bath's theology if one does not simply concentrate on the endings, the finished thesis and conclusions he arrives at, but even more so on the beginnings, which he undertakes after having arrived at certain conclusions. Could it be that Bart's motto, immer neu mit dem Anfang anfangen, always to start anew from the beginning, has also relevance for our reflections on eschatology? I will try to identify four such beginnings that might serve as signposts for the perplexed from the third part of the Unterricht in der Christlichen Religion, lectured, lectures Bart delivered in the winter semester 1925-26, his first semester at Münster. This is the only full systematic treatment of eschatology we find in Bart's work. First point, the basis of eschatological statements. <coughs> in the so-called Göttingen dogmatics, more aptly called Göttingen and Münster dogmatics, if you don't discount the eschatology, delivered at lectures in Göttingen, Münster for three semesters from 1924 on, Bart offered a first view of what be, could be called his dogmatics. There were more to follow the Christian dogmatics, and then the church dogmatics, with its many new beginnings in this magisterial exposition of the doctrine of the church. The Göttingen dogmatics stands out as a premature masterpiece in which Bart confronts the task of an exposition of the whole of Christian teaching in all its relationships. In paragraph 35, Bart begins the discussion of eschatology with a definition of the term which also contains his main thesis. Eschatology as the doctrine of Christian hope is the fundamental and concluding instruction concerning what it means that God in his eternal Son has elected and called lost sinners to be his partners in the covenant. Bart attempts here to describe the exact location of eschatology in the exposition of Christian doctrine. His main thesis is that Christian hope is rooted in the grace of reconciliation as its foundation. We have to raise the question of eschatology, the question of the ultimate whither on the basis of faith in God the Creator who conserves, conserves his creation that in turn asserts the whence of all created existence. However, Bart argues, since creation is from nothing, it does not by implication guarantee an eschatological future for God's creation. Without being preserved by God, it falls back into nothingness, the ultimate annihilation already implied in believing in a creator who creates us kills us. In a similar way, 
we can raise the question of eschatology on the basis of the fact that man is addressed by God and as such called into communion with God in a covenantal relationship. Because of being addressed by God, humanity has the hope of eternal life. However, called into, into the covenant with God, humans have contradicted their destiny and broken the covenant. The order of creation turns into judgment for the sinner. Humans can only have hope because God also addresses humans who have fallen away from him. That is the reality of God's grace, which has the character of a pure gift. The light of grace is the light of reconciliation, Bart maintains, and God's reconciling word opens the outlook on redemption. He writes pointedly, Christian truth does not become eschatologi es eschato eschatological. I've had difficulties with that word for now over 40 years. Eschatological, and it's eschatological from the beginning, von Haus aus, which one can translate as from the beginning or even as by default. Therefore, one has to say that dogmatics proceeds from redemption given in hope. Bart is quick to assert that the state of grace, which is the foundation of this hope, is the church. God creates the church as the, as the creature of the word and of the sacrament as the means of the calling of grace. He can say emphatically, faith comes into being from hope because the word which humans can proclaim and grasp is a word of promise. However, this does not deny the absolute boundary of death. Knowledge of grace always implies knowledge of death and of the subject matter of grace beyond the boundary of death. At the beginning of the next paragraph, paragraph 36, the presence of Christ, Bart recapitulates the considerations of the preceding paragraph, which he now calls a reflection on the formal and general eschatology as distinguished from a material and special eschatology, only to discard the distinction immediately by claiming that the formal and material can never be separated. The formal considerations about the systematic location, the status, and the basis of eschatological statements are presented as the formal aspects of this particular material content. Bart presents in paragraph uh, 36 and repeats again emphatically that one cannot gain knowledge of redemption on the basis of the Christian understanding of creation. Redemption cannot be extrapolated from creation because creation logically implies the end of the creature apart from the relationship to God. Similarly, Bart criticizes the Protestant scholastics of the 17th century, criticizes that the Protestant scholastics of the 17th century discussed the immortality of the soul here as the first article of eschatological hope and decisively refers this question to theological anthropology. The six articles of eschatological hope are radically reduced to one the advent of Jesus Christ. 
he is the subject of all eschatological propositions. Whatever else should be said must be said as predicates of this subject. Second section, the subject of eschatological statements and its predicates. Paragraph 36, the presence of Christ, opens with the following complex guiding thesis. Redemption is like creation and reconciliation, but also over against them, as something new. Third and last, true and real in God's word to humanity. The Redeemer is none other than the eternal Son of God, through whom all things are created, none other than the incarnate one, through whom God has reconciled the world with himself, Jesus Christ. His advent, direct knowability, and presence in glory in which he is risen as true God and true man, that is the promise, the content of hope. The hour of this advent comes as the last hour of all humans, of the whole of human nature and the whole of history. It is near in the light, literally lightness, Lichtheit, that's even a neologism in German, and darkness of extreme possibilities and actualities in nature and history. It is already here, where grace finds faith and obedience in the true church. Why is Barth so keen to emphasize that redemption is something new, third and last, true and real in God's word to humanity? He immediately points out that for God in the actus purus of God's eternal agency, creation, reconciliation, and redemption are one. However, in this unity, God is not revealed to us. In the last consequence, that Medans part states, states, if we could know God in the unity of his agency, there would be no revelation. Revelation of God always means revelation in time. And therefore, we must maintain that revelation occurs together with reconciliation. Only in reconciliation we have the coincidence of divine action and revelation. In creation, Bart states, there is not yet revelation. In redemption, there is no longer revelation. The analogy he offers at this point is the understanding of the threefold ministry of Christ in Reformed scholasticism. Just as the priestly office of Christ opens up our understanding of his royal office as king of all creation, and of the prophetic office as the bringer of all truth in redemption. So we have to start from the unity of reconciliation and revelation in order to understand how creation and redemption are to be understood as revelation from this perspective. However, talking about revelation and reconciliation in this sense means talking about Jesus Christ believing him to be none other than the eternal Son, the Creator Logos, who became incarnate and through whom God reconciled the world to himself, determines the referent of all eschatological statements, the one subject of all eschatological propositions and the object of Christian hope. What does it mean to say that Jesus Christ is the subject of all eschatological propositions? 
and that everything else that needs to be said must be understood as predicates of this subject. The first implication is that all other contents of eschatological hope, the so-called eschata, death, immortality of the soul, resurrection, the last judgment, the consummation or annihilation of the world, must be understood as they are given in the revelation in Jesus Christ. Since there is no other ground, no other basis for eschatological statements, all that Christians are invited to hope for must be contained in Jesus Christ. However, Bart is keen to emphasize that as the Redeemer, Christ is something new in comparison to his being the mediator of creation and the reconciler. He insists that Christ posits himself, almost Fichtian in this uh, expression, as a third in a new way in which revelation is no longer dialectically related to hiddenness, and where faith is transcended in the immediate experience of the Visio Beatifica. In this sense, he speaks of the advent of Christ and rejects language of a second coming, the Iterum Venturus in the Creed. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son in whom God reconciled the world to God's self, comes in a new way. The same subject comes in a new and different way, not again. It is intriguing <coughs> that Bart offers these eschatological reflections under the heading of the presence of Christ. That implies that the advent of Christ must be understood in relation to time and space as the ultimate disclosure of the relation of God's space to our created spaces and of God's time to our created times. Bart makes two decisive moves. He rejects both understanding the advent of Christ as the abstract transcendence of all spatial and temporal categories, as well as the premature concreteness of specifying a particular time and a particular space for Christ's coming. In this way, it becomes clear that we can neither abstract from our concrete standpoint in time and space when we make eschatological claims, nor can we locate the eschatological event in the realm of divine eternity and omnipresence. By seeing Jesus Christ, the one who was incarnate and has been raised into the eternity of God as the subject of eschatological propositions, we have to spell out how the presence and eternity of the triune God fulfills, comprehends, and becomes actual in our created time and space. With regard to our relationship to time and eternity, this includes, Bart maintains, three elements. Impediment, movement, and disquiet. Impediment, since we're constantly reminded that we have not yet reached our end. Movement, since we have to understand ourselves as the end the destination of the movement of the coming of Christ to us. Movement, not as our movement towards the future, but understanding uh, us as the destination of the movement of the coming of Christ to us. 
and as disquiet in which we are driven by the pneuma of the coming Lord to wait in expectation, wide awake, expecting to be surprised. This complex relationship between eternity and time also opens up a new perspective on the interpretation of Paul's eschatology. Bart bluntly states that for Paul, the encounter with Christ in his coming is identical with the moment of death of the individual person. God's time, the time of the coming of Christ in glory, cannot be plotted on the line of created time in such a way that the assumption of a sleep of the souls would become necessary. When we die, we encounter the coming Christ. Christ's coming and our death are located at the intersection of the movement of eternity and the sequence of created time. Third section, the reality of the resurrection. <coughs> the next paragraph has as its heading the resurrection from the dead. In this paragraph, Bart unfolds the correspondence between Christ's new presence in the glory of the Father and the new and final work he performs for the humans reconciled by him. The resurrection of the dead summarizes for Bart a complex, differentiated reality that includes the following elements. I will not try to translate the convoluted German of the guiding thesis of this paragraph into equally convoluted English. It is convoluted German even by Bart standards. But I will simply give you a list of the elements which this guiding thesis contains. And that's complicated enough. The resurrection of the dead and the gift of life for those Christ has reconciled and who are members of the body of which he is the head. The overcoming of their existence, which is sealed by the separation of soul and body in death. This contradiction consists in the fact that humans are children of Adam and children of God, sinners and justified subject to time and its passing and destined for eternity. That they are in Christ elected calls justified and sanctified identical with themselves so that their existence has, on the other hand, passed away and is regenerated. And they are, on the other hand, wearing the clothes of the new creation distinguished from the Creator, yet neither separated nor separable from Him, so that they live on a new earth and under a new heaven where righteousness dwells. What is in this way promise for hope becomes actual and is fulfilled in the resurrection of the dead. Now imagine this squeezed into one sentence. Why does Karl Barth present these extraordinary complexities? It seems that after the complex unfolding of the correspondence between the new presence of Jesus Christ 
and the new work of the resurrection of the dead, the hope that Karl Barth could be our guide in the perplexities of present-day eschatologies seems even more foolhardy than at the beginning. Barth is quick to point out that the laying out of these complexities is necessary because the distinguished elements are all aspects of the one reality of the resurrection. Presenting them in narrative order as a sequence of events would turn dogma into myth. Therefore, all the different elements must be understood as aspects of one reality, an eschatological reality that does not follow the temporal sequence of created time. The reality that is described here, however, is nothing other, is nothing other than the person of Christ. He is at once the Redeemer and the Redemption. What appears in the Regnum Gratiae as the conflicted reality of the Church militant appears in the Regnum Gloriae as the reality of the Church triumphant, which celebrates the victory of Christ. The parousia is the end of the Church militant. The communion with Christ becomes directly, immediately, and visibly true, just as it is here and now, before the parousia, only indirectly known, in immediate form, and in a hiddenness which can only be accessed by faith through the Spirit. The point Bart makes by means of a stark dialectic of the rather convoluted guiding thesis is of central importance. The believers who through the resurrection of the dead participate in the new presence of Christ and so become part of the Regnum Gloriae are nobody else than the justified sinners they are in the Regnum Gratiae. As the children of Adam, they are in Christ the children of God. As those who are subject to time and death, they are included in the new eternal creation, in perfect communion with God, distinguished but not separated from the reality of the divine being. The new humans of the resurrection are the old children of Adam and Eve. And as the old children of Adam and Eve participate in Christ, they participate in the new humanity. As those who are identical with themselves, they are now identified as those who participate in the new presence of Christ. This emphasis, which lies behind the pronounced dialective of, of Bart's phrases, contains a very important existential point. Christians do not hope to be somebody else in the new presence of Christ not just, just justified replicas of the sinners we are here and now. If that were the case, we, the sinners, would have not much to hope for, because the new reality would be totally discontinuous with our present life. However, Christians also do not hope to be their old self, whose weaknesses have been compensated for, somehow patched up by a divine gift of grace. If that were the case, we would have not much to hope for either. The life of the new creatures in Christ 
would be their whole life, supported by spiritual bandages and prosthesis. Their resurrection is an ontologically new reality for those who in the old order of reality have to die. <coughs> Bart offers here an astonishing interpretation of the Lutheran simul justus, justus et peccator, simul justa et peccatrix. However different from Luther in one of his interpretations of this formula, he maintains that we are not sinners and in re, in reality, and justified in spe, in hope, as Luther says. Hope is grasped by the new reality of the resurrection so that we are sinners in spe, destined for death and justified in the reality of the risen Christ. It is, I think, an exact and extended juxtaposition of the Lutheran view. Bart makes four points that emphasize the ontological shift that is included in being in Christ. A, redemption does not mean that humans stop being themselves and become someone different. God remains the creator and humans remain God's creatures. There is no transmutation into a new identity. B, there is also not the addition of a new element. Nothing is added to what reconciled humans are already in Christ, a new creation. C, redemption does not mean that humans are miraculously transferred to another place called heaven, but emphasizes that the world of God, which we wake up, in which we wake up, having been raised from the dead, is not another world, a metaphysical world behind, or a supernatural world above our world. It is our world as it has passed away and is regenerated in the resurrection. And D, the time that is embraced by eternity will be our time. The now of our being redeemed is the now of our being now unredeemed. The resurrection saves our time that apart from the resurrection would be lost to nothingness. Fourth section, Soli Deo Gloria. The guiding thesis of paragraph 38, the glory of God begins, redemption means for humans that they, fulfilling the meaning of creation, liberated from sin and death, see God. God as God is, and love how they want to be loved. Bart radically emphasizes the freedom of God in redemption by stating that redemption does not occur for the sake of humans, but in order that God's name be glorified, that the kingdom of God should come and that God's will be done on earth as in heaven. Therefore, redemption is the final crisis in which the redemption of those reconciled in Christ corresponds ultimately to the non-redemption of unreconciled sinners. Bart states that the justification of the one corresponds to the judgment of the other. In the Göttingen Dogmatics, this is one of Bart's first attempts to grapple 
with the problem of the apocatastasis pantum, the restitution of all. Here he rejects it in its modern liberal version, in which God is no longer the subject in everything that occurs, but a predicate of another human subject. He writes, the God who is all in all in the sense of the doctrine of the Apocatastasis Panton has ceased to be God because he is, with his alleged redemption, neither question nor answer, not free, not the Lord in everything, not the subject in everything, but in a hidden manner, the predicate of everything. Part emphasizes that those who are excluded from redemption are left to themselves. However, he writes, they are not excluded when it is said that God will be everything to everyone, all in all. 1 Corinthians 15:28. For them, he is the one who does not want what they want. He demonstrates in them his justice as in the blessed his mercy. And so Barth's first lecture, Cause and Dogmatics, ends with a question. To whom will he demonstrate the one? To whom the other? This question is the last word of dogmatics. This is like all honest words in dogmatics, not the question of an observer. It is directed at hominem. End of the quotation. We may note in passing that with the paragraphs of his Göttingen dogmatics, Barth provides a powerful diagnostic tool for assessing eschatological claims, secular and religious. He encourages us to ask, what is the foundation of these eschatological visions? Who is the subject of these eschatological statements? What is the reality that is proposed as the eschatological reality? And last and fourth, qui gloria? Who, whose glory does this eschatological vision serve? Third section, from signposts to map. In the eschatological paragraphs of the Göttingen dogmatics, Barth frequently criticizes the dogmatic tradition. With regard to eschatology, its failure consists in not sufficiently connecting the elements of eschatological teaching with the rest of dogmatics, a task that, in Barth's view, is demanded by the biblical witness of a bit of witness to revelation and not by some internal necessity to be systematic in dogmatics. The other criticism is directed against a spiritualist tendency to focus eschatological reflection on the way to heaven and not on the transformation of the new heavens and the new earth. He quotes approvingly William Ames when he writes, Non elim solos alia alios et terram alium, said solos novos et terram novam expectamos. We expect not another heavens and another earth, but the new heavens and the new earth. 
spiritualist expeditions to explore the geography of the heavens, he challenges with the angry questions, what about the earth? What about the now? What about the body? Explorations of the heavenly spheres he scathingly criticizes as the ride of eschatological speculation in a hot air balloon. Freiballonfahrt der eschatologischen Spekulation. Bart's counter-strategy, both to the danger of dogmatic disconnectedness and spiritualist exploration, is to focus everything that can be said about the eschata on the eschatos, on Jesus Christ. In Christ, everything that can be said about the last things must be contained. The finality of the gospel is the finality of Christ. But achieves this by emphasizing the unity of reconciliation and revelation. In God's reconciliation of the world in Christ, the eschatological mystery is revealed in such a decisive way that it makes eschatological speculation apart from Christ redundant. Revelation must be understood not just as an epistemic principle, as a true, but as a true apocalypsis as the ultimate eschatological disclosure and actualization of truth in the event of reconciliation. Reconciliation and revelation happen on earth, and so they make the journey to the heavens by the apocalyptic seer unnecessary. The disclosure of the new has the form of reconciliation, of overcoming the contradictions against God and of commissioning those who are reconciled with a message of reconciliation. Reconciliation is a communicative event establishing in Christ a new relationship of sinful humanity to their creator. Bart consistently emphasizes that the one who comes in a new way, not a second time, as the Redeemer, is the same in whom we are reconciled, and in whom and through whom everything was created. One cannot talk about the Christocentric character of Bart's theology without pointing to the Christo-integrative structure of his exposition of Christian doctrine. The way in which Bart applies the unity of reconciliation and revelation to the whole structure of Christian dogmatics, not least to eschatology, is in the Göttingen dogmatics a new application of the three regna, the three kingdoms, that he had already used in the Tambach lecture of 1990. The regnum naturae, the kingdom of nature, the kingdom of grace, and the kingdom of God's glory. The relationship of the three regna can only be accessed from the regnum gratiae, from the proclamation of the gospel of Christ here and now, which provides the key for understanding the regnum naturae and the regnum gloria. In the gutting dogmatics, Bart already begins, because of the unity of reconciliation and revelation, to correlate these three regna with the three lumina, the three lights, the light of nature, the lumen gratiae, the light of grace, and the light of glory. In the unity of these three lights, Christ is the light of the world.
One can follow the trajectories of the distinctive emphases of the Göttingen dogmatics throughout the structure of Barth's theology. In the church dogmatics, the signposts are turned into a theological map. Tracing these trajectories, one arrives on the one hand at the beginning of all beginnings, the election of the man Jesus as God's ultimate self-determination to be God for us. On the other hand, the way of God with his creation now becomes the way of God in Jesus with us. In this sense, the eschatos is also the protos, the very first elected in the divine election. Bart transcends the usual correlation of eschatology and protology as the correspondence between the time of the beginning and the time of the end by locating the beginning of all beginnings in God's self. Since the protological act is the election of Jesus, the eschatological emphasis on the eschatos receives its ultimate ground. In this sense, it is possible to say that the end, the coming of the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth, are already rooted in this beginning. Conversely, one has to maintain that this perspective is only opened up in the end, in the advent of God, which is revealed in the reconciliation of, in Christ. The election of Jesus as the ultimate ground of the divine economy, however, changes the way in which we are included in God actualizing his own end, the act that is his being. The way of God to his fallen creatures now becomes the way into the far country. God following us on our way into the far country and leading us on his way to our eternal home. If one wanted to overwork the image of the signposts and the map, the map now becomes an interactive map with Jesus including us in his obedience to God the Father. This is the ultimate antidote to rights in the hot air balloon of eschatological speculation. Bart's question, what about the earth, what about the now, what about the body, are answered in Jesus sharing our earth, our now, and our body, and so being the actuality of the eschatos among us. Fourth part, very short, then I'm done. Bart's eschatology, a guide for the perplex. Bart would have been the first to point out that his theology cannot provide any guidance in the perplexities of our present age. If there is one thing that Bart saw as characteristic of his theology, it is the long index finger of St. John pointing to Christ on the cross in Matthias Grünewald's famous depiction of the crucifixion. Hunk Audita, listen to him. Guidance can only be found in listening to him who shared the human misery, including our perplexities, in the most radical way. But interprets the finality of the gospel as the finality of Christ crucified and risen, 
Christ whose advent we expect. If we follow this fundamental pathos of Barth's theology, we can confront the extravagances of secular eschatologies with a spirit of ironic soberness. Should we look for a future beyond the earth if it is the earth that is sanctified by being God's creation and carrying the promise of a new earth, not another earth, not another planet, but the transformation of this earth by God's glory? Should we not remain faithful to the earth and rather learn a new respect for its status as a creature and as the habitat of God's story with his human creatures? In a similar way, it seems that the high-flying hubris of human self-transcendence is shattered by the inversion of transcendence which occurs in the Incarnation. Can it really be that our salvation lies in transhumanism when the message of the gospel is that God became man and when the energies of the best theological minds were spent for 2,000 years in preventing the humanity of Jesus being understood as some form of transhuman? Can we continue to confess in the creed for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven and was made man? and silently watch the conquest of the sky in order to find new dwelling places for future generations of humans in the universe? It would seem to be that the task of Christian ap apocalypticism is more to do with the shattering of the fantasies of secular apocalyptics than with developing a Christian version of cosmic catastrophes and salvage operations. It is clear that the imagery of disruption has its proper place in the disruption of the reign of sin, in the arrogant claims of those who want to be more than human by the gospel of the humanity of God. This disruption has perhaps its most authentic expression when it is good news for those who are left behind by the human search for the superhuman. Is not the true apocalypsis, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, of the kabut Adonai in the face of Christ? This seems to be more in keeping with the message of Jesus in his words and deeds, who pointed to the coming of the kingdom of God in the quotidian life of a Galilean village. Christian apocalypticism will demonstrate its Christian character by questioning apocalyptic visions that proclaim other Gospels. It belongs to the particular distinctive character of Bart's theology that the insight into the ultimacy of the Gospel must find expression in the community of the Church. Theological insight, that was his confident hope, can be translated into forms of sociality that point to the truth of the gospel. As the body of Christ, the church is also called to be the embodiment of the truth of the gospel. As such, she witnesses in the concrete forms of her living, in her liturgy and proclamation, in her forms of social interaction, in her giving and receiving, 
to her faith in Christ as the eschatos. If one follows Barth's treatment on eschatology through the great work that carries, not by accident, the title Church Dogmatics, one has the impression that the tone of eschatological reflection becomes more and more pastoral. If the one who is coming is the beginning of the end and whose eschatological advent is the end of the beginning is portrayed as the Good Shepherd, then the pastoral would seem to be particularly appropriate, a particularly appropriate way of guiding us through our perplexities. Thank you very much.